I'm Jeff Sikinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition American Idea Podcast. Uh, and I am delighted to be joined today by uh, an old friend and a terrific scholar and a terrific teacher by the name of Eric Pullen. Uh, Eric is a, uh, actually recently got the fantastic- Associate professor. He is promoted. He is currently associate professor at Carthage College, but he's going to be He's about to be promoted. So there you go. Thank Carthage you, College in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Eric and I go way back. We were both uh, we were both graduate students together at the University of Illinois back in the early 1990s. And he is an expert on diplomatic history. And what we're here to talk about is U.S. relations with China. Obviously, China is in the news these days. And uh, it in order to, to give some more context for the current situation between the United States and China. It is worthwhile looking back to the so-called China opening uh, that occurred during the Nixon administration and is associated with Nixon himself and Nixon's very famous national security advisor, Henry Kissinger. Uh, Eric, welcome. Thank you, John. I'm hoping that we could start out with uh, some more context uh maybe say something about the international situation that Nixon and Kissinger inherited when they came to the White House in 1969. Despite the fact that the Cold War had been raging since uh, uh, the mid-1940s, and we, we, have a, we, we often have an, a, a vision of the international system as being dominated by these two superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States, we have a tendency to think that they were equal superpowers, but the simple fact of the matter is, is that the United States had preponderant power and was easily the dominant plan, uh, country on the planet. That really began to change in the 1960s, and the United States began to experience a relative decline in power. Uh, for, let me give you an example. Uh, European allies became more independent and uh, of the United States, uh, pursued policies that maybe even diverged from the United States. They were they were more critical of U.S. policy. Uh, the German economy, in particular, uh, was growing by leaps and bounds in the 1960s. Uh, and also, Europe, Europe, even America's great ally, Great Britain. Uh, disliked America's policy in Vietnam, uh, which it viewed as not only a moral but a strategic uh, mistake. Uh, and they thought 
that above all that the, 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 the Vietnam War diminished uh, America's commitment to the Vietnam War diminished the US commitment to Europe in the 1960s. In other words, the, the United States had been a, a key, if not the most important player in protecting Western Europe's security, especially with regard to the Soviet Union. And the more the United States became committed in Vietnam, the less the Europeans came, became, came to believe that. Uh, moreover, the, the independence of European countries during the 1960s was really remarkable. During the 1960s in West Germany, Chancellor Willy Schmidt, or Willy Schmidt, I'm sorry, not Schmidt, Brandt, Brandt, uh, pursued a policy, uh, a separate policy, independent of the United States, that attempted to reduce uh, tensions between West Germany and, and the Soviet Union, uh, his, his famous Ostpolitik, or Eastern politics. And uh, as I mentioned before, probably the biggest problem the United States faced well, was, was, was the Vietnam War itself. It caused domestic problems for, for the United States, uh, uh, a, a huge loss of international credibility. And then I'd say the final thing that, that Kissinger and Nixon had inherited was that in the late 60s, you see a, a, a series of, of revolutions, protests, demonstrations, literally around the world in China, in the Soviet Union, in the satellite countries, in Latin America, and in, in, in Western Europe, in France. 68 was the uh, uh, the Europe protest. The United States and the Soviet Union and even China decided for themselves that what was necessary was stability. And so all three of these countries realized uh, that there needs to be a minimization of tension uh, among the countries, uh, if if they're going to maintain global stability and international order, so that's so, that's, the, that's that's what they inherited. So we've got uh, a combination of factors. We've got the, the 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 quagmire, so to speak, in Vietnam. We've got global prote- uh, protest against, really directed at at all the great powers, uh, and um, added to that this. The United States entering this period of relative decline, decline relative to countries such as West Germany and perhaps uh, and perhaps Japan. Well, how did Nixon and Kissinger seek to address these problems through their for, their approach to foreign affairs? Yeah, one of the things I think is is really interesting is that this this relative decline occurred at the same time as what became known as the uh, the Sino-Soviet split, the uh, the Soviet-Chinese split. Before the 1960s, I mean, throughout the entire Cold War, Americans and analysts in the West viewed the communist world as a unified, uh, monolithic force that, that needed to be contended with on, and each country needed to be contended with on an equal basis. And they also viewed the Cold War as a zero-sum game, so that if China went communist, you'd you, you see the map being colored in red uh, along with the Soviet Union. Before you know it, uh, more countries are being colored in red. And quite frankly, not that many countries were colored in red by the late 1960s. But it looked like half the planet was turning red. Kissinger and Nixon took advantage of this split that revealed that communism was not in fact monolithic. And they realized, I think first and foremost, this is this is their, their biggest contribution to international relations, was that China and the Soviet Union could be played off against one another. That's how I would have answered that question. But right. I mean, if, if you want to follow up, I... 
No, that it 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 makes it entire it completely makes sense to me. So there's an opportunity. We have this this historic opportunity that some were predicting as early as 1950. I'm thinking of Dean Acheson in particular. So uh, there's an op- historic opportunity to exploit differences between the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. Uh, and quite naturally, uh, Nixon and Kissinger opted to take advantage of that. Can you say something about the relationship between Nixon and Kissinger? Yeah, I, th- I think they were an odd team. Uh, they're one of the most improbable political duos uh, that I can really think of. They they never really liked each other. Uh, in fact, they spoke of each other uh, behind each other's backs with, with great contempt. Uh, uh, Nixon, Kissinger, of course, was, was a Jewish uh, uh, immigrant from uh, Germany, escaped the Holocaust, uh, spoke with a very thick <clears throat> accent. It was very ponderous in the way he spoke, very slow. And in fact, often commanded a room for those very reasons. Uh, Nixon would refer to him with a variety of, of of religious epithets that demeaned Kissinger behind his back. But he respected Kissinger's intellect tremendously. Hmm. Kissinger, for his part, saw Nixon as, as paranoid, uh, insecure. Uh, called him meat. He had a, he had a meat mind. Constantly flattered Nixon, but the backbiting behind the scenes was very, the men, both men were equally childish. But here's the thing. Nixon needed Kissinger be, precisely because of Kissinger's intellect. He needed Kissinger because Kissinger was one of the most creative academic minds uh, in, in the 50s and the 60s. He was actually courted by Democrats uh, in 1968. And, and it's a fair I don't think it's unfair to say that if Humphrey had won in 68, he might well have been uh, part of Humphrey's staff. Kissinger was, a uh, he was, let's call him a gun for hire. And then you have uh, Nixon's uh, respect for uh, Kissinger's connections, uh, his intelligence, his creativity, as I mentioned. So what's in it for Kissinger? What's in it for Kissinger is that Nixon won the election of 1968. He had access to power. So Nixon needed a smart guy in uh, in in foreign affairs, and Kissinger needed someone who could make him powerful. Kissinger's Kissinger's famous term: "Power is the ultimate aphrodisiac." Ultimate aphrodisiac. Yes, he and Nixon though shared something in common, and and that is uh, that's megalomania and and paranoia. I think both men were equally paranoid and and uh, megal- megalomaniacal. What what made the partnership work is despite their mutual contempt for one another and their mutual suspicion uh, about one another, they both shared the need to centralize power. One of the ironies I think, or I find about the Nixon administration is that Nixon appointed a man named William Rogers to be his secretary of state. And the two men were actually really good friends, but Nixon distrusted the bureaucracy of the state department he feared that he would lose control of decision making and that William Rogers did not have either the bureaucratic skills or the intelligence, pardon me, to rein in what Nixon feared as, a, as an uncontrollable bureaucracy. So he began to centralize foreign policy decision making in the National Security 
agency, and that effectively bypassed the State Department as the chief foreign policy uh, department in the administration. I would also say that he did the same thing to his defense secretary, Melvin Laird, although he didn't have as close a relationship uh, with with Laird. What's, what's particularly jarring, I think, from, from the perspective of, of many historians and then just decent people is how easily Nixon could render one of his dear friends impotent uh, in the pursuit of his own image. So the, the, the team, this unlikely team of Nixon and Kissinger pursued a policy they called detente. What did that mean? To, what did that mean to them? And what was it supposed to accomplish? Well, I would say, well, first of all, the, the word detente, it's a diplomatic term. It's French. We use it to mean relaxation of, of tension. And the term actually goes back to, to World War I. I, th- I think you would know this pretty well. Uh, but the French and the Germans tried to form a detente uh, in the year year or two before World War One, uh, but that failed. But the but the idea of detente is that tensions need to be relaxed so that both countries, especially the Soviet Union and the United States, can focus more on domestic problems, and that they don't have to worry about an ever increasing or an ever dangerous, dangerously increasing uh, arms race, and that by minimizing tensions. Both countries can focus on, uh, on on problems near and closer to home. The idea of detente is that it would uh, also, from Nixon, I'm sorry, Nixon and Kissinger's point of view, is that detente would help the United States extract itself from Vietnam in an honorable way because of the mistaken belief on Nixon and Kissinger's part that Moscow actually had more influence and co- in and control over Hanoi than it actually did. So a, a lot of detente then was based on a, on a completely false, uh, false assumption. Mm. Well, there were false assumptions that were a part of detente. Okay. But I don't want to, I don't want to be accused of saying that detente was based on a false assumption. If you look at detente as the relaxing of tensions, then detente is a means to an end. Okay. And tensions, reducing tensions in themselves, is a uh, is an, is an important goal. But but let's All explore right. what you what you said in a bit more depth. Uh, Kissinger and Nixon premised the way that they would pursue detente uh, according to a concept known as linkage, and the idea is that by um, well, linkage was Kissinger's idea that uh, by connecting military and political ideas, uh, the United States would achieve its diplomatic objectives. In other words, think of it like this. There can't be progress on issue B until you first have progress on issue A. Issue A must be resolved before issue B can be addressed. So for for Kissinger and Nixon, it was well we've got to we've got to end this Vietnam War, and then we'll talk about arms reduction. The mistaken assumption is one well mistaken assumptions were that one Kissinger and Nixon overestimated uh, their power to influence events. Two, they influ- they overestimated the Soviets' power to influence events, and three, they underestimated the ability of Hanoi. Or the North Vietnamese to control their own destiny. Destiny, in other words, they—I don't think they realized 
how much Hanoi was able to tell the Soviets and the Chinese, no, we're going in our own direction. So to take it back to linkage, Nixon and Kissinger said, we solved this Vietnam crisis and we'll give you arms reductions. The Soviets are saying, who are working under completely different assumptions, say, no, 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 let's work on arms reductions or the strategic arms limitation talks. Then we'll talk about Vietnam and we'll do what we can. But we can't solve Vietnam, so why are you ignoring arms reductions? And Kissinger and Link, uh, Kissinger and Nixon keep thinking we need to link the two together so that we pressure the Soviets and we achieve American uh, diplomatic goals. It's easier for me to see why the Soviet Union was open to uh, to to detente than it is for me to understand why the People's Republic of China was. I, I mean, because the the Soviets were in a in a in a way in a period of crisis themselves. Correct. I mean, they were facing major major instability in Eastern Europe. Were the Chinese facing anything comparable? Well, absolutely. The, the, the Cultural Revolution, and uh, which uh, turned Chinese society upside down. Keep in mind that during the Cultural Revolution, and even in the Soviet Union, not just in the satellite countries, you have violent protests that are very disruptive. And in, in both countries, the Soviet Union and China, you have a, a, a desire among ordinary people to have access to more consumer goods or a better life. And among the elites, you have a, a recognition that both countries are technologically behind the West mm. and a need and a desire to integrate themselves with the West so that they can have more uh, access to modernization and technology. Those are big spurs, but I don't want to ignore the political motivation for uh, what draws the Chinese into this. Let's let's use not, not use the term detente, but rapprochement. And uh, rapprochement is another French term often used in, in diplomacy, which which basically means the um, but rapprochement means the uh, not the relaxation of tensions, but more like the ending of hostilities. So it's I, I think of it as a category uh removed from detente detente is closer to friendship than rapprochement and why do the chinese want rapprochement let's think about the one strategic mistake uh, or a major strategic mistake that the americans made in the 1950s and 60s and that was the failure to regard china and the soviet union as separate nations and when I say China, I mean the People's Republic of China, because if we talk about Taiwan, that'll that'll be relevant later. But for the moment, realize that in 1969, the Soviets and the Chinese had something like 100 or more border clashes in March 1969 alone. And uh, the, uh, the Soviets had become so fed up with the Chinese that they started to refer to the Chinese with racial epithets in official diplomatic correspondence. Meanwhile, Mao is describing the Soviet Union as number one enemy or enemy number one. And it is something that I think we have a hard time understanding because we tend to look, even today, we tend to look as at the Cold War as a fight between capitalism and communism. But the Cold War was so much more complex than that. And if, if we step back for a moment, we realize that the United States was not always friendly with its allies. And the United States had 
uh, problems with countries that were allied neither to the Soviets nor the United States, well, it shouldn't surprise us then that the same thing was occurring in the communist world. The United States, ever since the, the late 1940s, had been, generally speaking, pursuing a policy called containment. Uh, detente really seems like kind of a radical break from that. Does that is 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 could detente be classified as a form of a of containment, or might it be seen as a repudiation of it? Yeah, I think Nixon Nixon was uh, Nixon was criticized by the uh, the conservatives of the right, people like Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, uh, the National Review, for uh, betraying the policies of of containment. John Ashbrook. John Ashbrook also. That's a great point. Uh, he um he or rather they nixon and kissinger they saw containment as part of the i'm sorry they saw detente as part of the strategy of containment they still wanted to limit the expansion of communism but the way that they saw themselves limiting the expansion of communism was by limiting soviet strategic arms trying to prevent or create disincentives for the Soviets to engage in revolutionary activity around the uh, around the world. The idea of whether it's a radical departure or not, I think is over that it's a radical departure, I think is overstated. Detente is a new tactic within a larger strategy of containment. Containment means no Soviet expansion. Detente is predicated upon an idea that many neoconservatives hated and that many uh, uh, liberals and progressives had been pushing for a long time. And that's the idea that communism, or at least the communist states, don't act any differently than any other state. Let's look at it like this. Kissinger fancied himself to be a practitioner of realpolitik. Realpolitik is the notion that international politics in each nation is based on each nation's interest. That international relations should be pursued on the basis of pragmatism, even realism. And that idealism or ideology, like communist ideology, are secondary to how a country makes its foreign policy. Many Americans, and not just neoconservatives, said that that approach to foreign policy ignores a very fundamental aspect of what motivates and drives the Soviets. And so that detente, far from, or not, rather than representing a radical departure, is a mistake, a mistaken tactic within this larger strategy of containment. And if you take it, if we go back to, to, to Kissinger's notion of linkage, what we find is that Kissinger kept hoping to link certain larger policies like, like, uh, uh, opening of trade between the Soviet Union and the United States or arms reduction to uh, getting better behavior from the Soviets in the developing or third world. And so that was how Kissinger and Nixon would have explained away uh, their their vision of detente as being as not being a radical departure uh, from containment. Do you think that the the, the the results of detente demonstrates that the, the realist understanding that states behaved in different, essentially the same way, the only thing that mattered was how much power they had, 
regardless of ideology? Did it, did it prove that to be wrong, do you think? Well, see, I, I'd, I'd hesitate to say it's wrong or it's right, because the when I was in graduate school, I was we were taught that there's realist thinking, there's idealist thinking, there's neoliberalist thinking, there's Marxist thinking, there's there's constructivist thinking. And I think it's messier than than being able to put things into categories. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Kissinger and Nixon fancied themselves realists, but they constantly misjudged uh, what their adversaries expected, wanted, uh, what they perceived. Their their realism was often based on their own their own the, the creations of their own ideas. The, their their own notion of realism was a, a distorted view of the world through their paranoid and megalomaniacal lenses. I'm not sure that detente proves or disproves the validity of, of, of realism, but I will tell you that Kissinger and Nixon routinely made decisions that were based on prejudice, faulty information that led to disastrous consequences, and they were doing so in the name of, 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 of realism. Detente might or might not have been a good strategy, but as practiced by Nixon and Kissinger, it often had disastrous results. And not just disastrous results for our relationship with the Soviet Union or or with China, but disastrous results uh, in the developing world, in Latin America, in um, in South Asia. The, uh, the Indo-Pakistani War of 1971 uh, was significantly exacerbated by the callous prejudices of Nixon and, uh, and and Kissinger during the crisis, and people needlessly suffered because of their 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 so-called realistic views of how to pursue détente. So, how did uh, détente defined uh, defined in terms of U.S. relations with the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China? How did how what did that have to do with the Indo-Pakistani conflict? Keep in mind that between the Chinese Revolution uh, of 1949 and 1972, the United States did not have diplomatic relations with China. In fact, the United States blocked uh, China's uh, seat on the UN Security Council, put Taiwan on, and the United States and China did not speak for 20 years. And in 1954, it was so bad that the Geneva Conference of 1954, which was discussing the fate of Vietnam, John Foster Dulles would not even shake uh, Zhao Enlai's hand. As we as we as we move forward, detente is sort of the realization that China is actually a legitimate country on the part of the Americans. It's a legitimate country. Not only does it need to be brought into the world because we are talking about a significant portion proportion of the planet, but oh my gosh, say Nixon and Kissinger. China might actually be able to serve U.S. policy ends. But before you can have detente with China, you have to have rapprochement with China. You have to have diplomatic relations with China. And the United States in 1970-71 has a vision that China can also help uh, not only balance the Soviet Union, but also help extricate the United States from the Vietnam War. Did I answer your question? Yeah, well, and we wanted to go back to South Asia. The Indo-Pakistani conflict. So in order to to uh, to maintain to to even develop relations with the Chinese, there's no mechanism. 
there's there's no embassy there's no ambassador you can call uh there's no formal state department apparatus so first the united states makes feelers through uh nikolai ceausescu's romania and it looks like they start to talk with the chinese you know they say things like you know, the americans would like to talk to you would you like to talk to them and the chinese are like you know it takes several months but they get back to them and then finally the united states ally pakistan which is led by ayub khan uh, a military dictator it basically is, is has formed an alliance with china now nixon and kissinger they want their highest priority is to make uh, a friendship with china but they need pakistan to uh to serve as a conduit or a back channel to communicate with the chinese as this is happening there's a very very brutal civil war occurring between west pakistan and east pakistan which is causing uh 10 million millions of refugees to flow from what's now the country of bangladesh into india into india itself i'm going to cut the story short short but as as the tensions continue in 1971 india is saying listen we can't continue like this and the idea that we're going to go to war with pakistan is very high pakistan says we need an american ally we need support from the chinese nixon believes that if he can show support for pakistan that the chinese will see that the united states is a reliable partner and engage in rapprochement with the united states really what nixon ended up doing was alienating the indians driving them into an uh into a de facto alliance with the soviet union not helping at all with the pakistanis because the country split up in um in the east and west uh or into bangladesh and, and what's now pakistan the chinese really didn't care that much what the united states did and above all the united states contributed to worsening one of the greatest humanitarian crises of the 20th century all because again of nixon and kissinger's paranoia misperceptions of foreign countries uh misperceptions of their goals and their uh their ideas their hopes their fears their dreams their aspirations uh but they nixon and kissinger viewed pakistan as an essential uh communicator in helping to bring the chinese and the americans together but it came at a tremendous cost to the people of south asia who had really nothing to do uh, or interest in uh sino-american friendship either for or against it was not even their issue so this um th this this paranoia manifests itself also in in almost an obsessive kind of secrecy concerning foreign affairs as well could you could you tell us why why keep this all so quiet yeah well both men again were uh, obsessively uh, obsessed with secrecy one of the reasons they were obsessed with secrecy is because controlling information meant control for them now the state department had a long history uh since uh certainly since world or the end of world war one of being quite independent of uh of the white house and secretaries of state did not always agree with the president and even if though the president could overrule the secretary of state and tell the secretary of state to, what to do it didn't necessarily mean that that would translate down into the bureaucracy that that made up the state department nixon recognized this as he became president 
when he became president, he wanted to centralize power, uh, uh, especially in foreign policy making, in the White House. And for him, the the, uh, the State Department, and less so, but still very much, the Defense Department, were they were leaky sieves. Uh, if people didn't like a president's policy, they'd leak something to the uh, to the press, or they would share information with other agencies so they could slow down an, an executive decision. Kiss, Nixon's decision to centralize or to coordinate power with the National Security Agency, which was controlled by Kissinger, was was the perfect moment for both of them, because they they believed that the two of them would simply be able to dictate to Nixon's staff, or I'm sorry, Kissinger's staff in the NSA, the National Security Agency, what um, what the White House wanted. And they also maintained secrecy because they Nixon was very nervous, especially in the first three years of his first term, that he would not be elected. Remember that Nixon in 1968 did not win a majority of the American voters, and he won by a hair's breadth. He was fully afraid that given the uh, the controversies, especially surrounding the Vietnam War and many of the economic maneuvers that he had engaged in in, uh, in his first term, that he would be voted out of office. This led Nixon to engage in a number of uh, activities, like for instance, the Watergate break-in, that was, I think, a part of Nixon's view of, of secrecy. Nixon wanted to guarantee himself re-election, maintain secrecy in the uh, the agencies and departments that run foreign policy, and then actively attempt to undermine your opponents through illegal activities. And that can't be done without secrecy. Now, many people know about the famous plumbers and, and creep, the committee to re-elect the president. But in 1969, the Pentagon Papers are released, and they reveal the Johnson, the Kennedy and Johnson administration's duplicity. They're leaked by uh, Daniel Ellsberg and released through the New York Times. And at first, Nixon and Kissinger are of the attitude, well, uh, not our problem, that's another administration. But then it comes out, oh my gosh, Ellsberg was actually part of Kissinger's staff. Now Nixon and Kissinger have to do damage control. And what's more is Kissinger says, gosh, if they can release these documents uh, about Lyndon Johnson, imagine what they could release about our administration. So the plumbers that Nixon has uh, breaking into the Watergate building uh, are just one example of the shenanigans that the administration is pulling to maintain secrecy, because what's going on at the same time is Kissinger is giving the okay to break into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office so that they can get uh, blackmail information on the man, so that they can discredit not just enemies, but potential enemies. So the, I, I would say that the biggest reason why they were obsessed with secrecy was so that they could maintain control and they could keep people in the dark. And if you keep people in the dark, they can't protest or fight against your, uh, your policies. Uh, and also, he disliked what later generations would call the deep state. Oh, uh, yeah, that's I, I, it's funny you mention that because I think if that term had been around, that's exactly what Nixon would have uh, would have called the State Department and the Defense Department and uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post and and everyone else. Yes, the deep state. So in 1972, 
Nixon pulls off a coup, right? He suddenly he's a, he's he is uh, he is in Peking, Beijing, and uh, the cameras are rolling. Nobody, you know, almost nobody knew that he was going. Uh, this is a huge surprise to the world. Um, what happened during that visit? What did, what did the two sides agree to? That's a great question. What happened during that visit? The answer is not much. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be flippant. Um, there's the famous Shanghai communique, and, that, and we really should discuss this. But Nixon, now, now get that, you want to talk about paranoia and megalomania. This event was so magnificently stage managed. And remember, it couldn't have occurred without uh, Kissinger's setup. Uh, uh, let, let's go back to, to Pakistan for a moment. In July of 1971, Kissinger it, it does he does this so-called tour of Southeast Asia, and then he's also going to stop in Pakistan. But he gets a tummy ache, and he has to go to he either has he, I forget if he went to the hospital or he was just out of uh, out of commission. And so what he's actually doing is he's flying to China, where he's negotiating the deal with uh, with Zhao Enlai, and he. Um, the Chinese actually ask Kissinger, why all the secrecy? Why can't we just do this? And Kissinger explains to him, well, secrecy for a, a number of domestic reasons, uh, but mostly uh, we want to um, we want to make sure that the uh, that this meeting that we're about to have is uh, is not uh, undermined by any any powers that we can't imagine. And when Kissinger speaks like that, he's really obliquely referring to the Soviet Union. But the problem is that Kissinger is being duplicitous with Zhao Enlai, of all people, and what he's really concerned about is American domestic politics. Nixon has to take credit for this. The year is 1972. Remember what I said a few moments ago? Nixon is fearful that he's going to lose this election. Now, we know that Nixon will win in a landslide in 72, mostly because his, his opponent, George McGovern, was so inept. But it's not unreasonable in 1971 and even early 1972 for Nixon to be worried about what's going to happen in November of 1972. Now, what happens in China? The biggest issue is, well, uh, let's put it like it. Nixon lands, Kissinger and the rest of the people, they have to stay on the plane till Nixon can come off the plane. He shakes hands with Zhao and Lai. Uh, the print media, is they're given like secondary credentials. The television media, they're given priority credentials uh, for the week in late February that that Nixon is of 72 when Nixon is in um, China. Basically, it's just Nixon touring the Great Wall, Pat Nixon, his wife going to schools, uh, toasts, uh, views of Chinese athletic events. There's very little diplomatic work of substance that's occurring in Nixon's actual visit. In fact, Mao only met with Nixon for maybe an hour because Mao was sick during Nixon's uh, visit. But that doesn't mean that nothing happened. Okay. All right. What happened? So, what the happened? Thing, <laughs> yes. The first thing I think that we should emphasize is the famous Shanghai communique. What I think is the most noteworthy thing about the Shanghai communique is the brilliance of Kissinger's diplomacy. Now, Zhao Enlai is a, uh, is a diplomat of 25 years. Kissinger is rightly regarded as a diplomatic genius. But let's be, let's think about this. When Kissinger starts his negotiations with China, the guy's only been a diplomat for like two or three years. For all of his brilliance, 
the, the man could be outmaneuvered and outclassed by other diplomats. China insists, even today, that Taiwan is part of China proper. The People's Republic of China views Taiwan as part of China. It's not an independent, sovereign nation. It's a, it's a breakaway province that needs to be reintegrated with China as a whole. And one of the things that Zhao and Lai insisted upon was that the Americans agree that that should be the case. Kissinger couldn't do that. Why? Because we actually had a defense agreement with Taiwan. American conservatives would have gone ballistic and Taiwan was an important staging area for the war in Vietnam. So what he did, in the, and I'm going to read this to you from the Shanghai uh, communique, and it says, the two sides reviewed the long-standing uh, serious disputes between China and the United States. The Chinese side refer, reaffirmed its position. This is the Chinese position. The Taiwan question is, is the crucial question obstructing the normalization of relations between China and the United States. The government of the People's Republic is the sole government of China. Taiwan is a province of China, which has long been returned to the motherland, uh, which has long been returned to the motherland. The liberation of Taiwan is China's internal affair, which no other country has the right to interfere. And all U.S. forces and military installations must be withdrawn from, from Taiwan. Here's the American side. The American side declared the United States acknowledges that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Strait maintain there is but one China and that Taiwan is part of China. That allows Kissinger to come home and say, listen, China is a part of Taiwan, not that Taiwan's a part of China. So we get it both ways. Another thing, a couple of interesting things I think that uh, that happened as a result of this uh, this meeting is that um, the Chinese also said we're not going to interfere if you escalate the war in Vietnam. Uh, and the Americans gave the Chinese satellite photos of Soviet troop dispositions along the Asian Asian frontier. So Nixon really wanted to make the Chinese uh, their friend. And when the Chinese said, we're not going to ask, or we're not going to interfere in Vietnam, you do what you need to do in Vietnam, we will still support the Vietnamese, but you do what you need. It was basically like the Chinese giving a blank check. And so what we get eventually is the, uh, uh, we, 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 get, uh, we get more intense bombing of Vietnam. And then later in the year, we'll get the Christmas bombings after the November election. The Chinese essentially turned a blind eye to what was going on in America or in Vietnam, while at the same time they're supporting uh, the Vietnamese with weapons, and and let me just take one one little tangent here, and that is, Vietnam is a really interesting case study in the Sino-Soviet split. The Vietnamese played the Chinese and the Soviets the way many American smaller allies have played, say or say some non-aligned countries played the United States and the Soviet Union. The, the Chinese and the Soviets gave the Vietnamese weapons, supplies, uh, support, but neither country, the Soviets nor the public, uh, People's Republic of China, could afford to alienate, from the perspective of communist politics, could afford to alienate Vietnam. And that meant that any time either the Soviets put too much pressure on the Vietnamese to make peace or the Chinese did, 
the Vietnamese could go to the other and say, hey, listen, we're fighting this war. You, you, you can't let us make peace with the Americans. This war is just too too important to lose. Absolutely. The Vietnamese diplomacy really, I think, should be uh, uh, studied, studied more. Too bad we don't have the documents to do it. So let, let's talk about some of the, uh, the the results of Nixon's visit to the People's Republic of China. This thing called the week that, that changed the world. I'm supposed to start talking about the short-term results, and then I want to bring things forward to the present day. And when, how, what? Well, I'll ask a separate question for that. Let's just talk about the immediate results for now. Well, the immediate results were um, Nixon was assailed by American conservatives, Goldwater, Reagan, the National Review. And and Reagan actually was given the task of having to go to Taiwan. And Reagan, who by at this moment was actually not a politician, he's uh, he's former governor at this point, thinking about running for president. He goes to Taiwan and he's given some pretty sketchy uh, instructions where he has to essentially explain the rapprochement with China to the Taiwanese. And Reagan comes back hardly convinced that what he's done is a good thing let's see oh japan was furious japan found out just minutes before uh what was going on and in the shanghai communique one of the things that the uh the united states and china agreed to was to prevent japanese hegemony or uh, attempts to expand in uh in asia and japan's thinking wait a minute we we, we don't have any we're not doing this. But at the same moment, the United States says, but we're still going to defend Japan. And the Soviet or the Chinese are thinking, yeah, so long as it's an anti-Soviet defense. And so Prime Minister Sato was completely sandbagged by this. And this poor guy had to resign like a a few weeks after after the Shanghai communique because it was such a disaster for U.S.-Japan relations. Uh, Another short-term consequence, George Bush became the envoy to the president george bush senior became the envoy to uh to china the first u.s envoy to china and uh taiwan became really really nervous because the shanghai communication as i think i mentioned failed to mention the uh, defense treaty uh and that's again why they why they sent sent reagan over there but once the conservatives found out about this they went nuts otherwise international reaction to Nixon's visit to China was incredibly positive. People thought when Nixon called it the the uh, uh, the week that changed the world, I think the news media around the planet would have agreed with him. I think most people, most observers of international affairs, thought that this was one of the most momentous occurrences in international affairs since uh, the Versailles Peace Treaty, uh, something along those lines. It was just. Just a big deal. Now that's go ahead. It, it, does does it contribute to to Nixon's successful reelection in 1972? Absolutely, because right after this, Nixon Nixon has a number of successes. I would say the three things that can contribute to Nixon's election in foreign affairs more than and they did more than domestic affairs. This is my opinion. There are many factors that contribute to his election, but I'll try and run through this quickly. One, the trip to China. Shortly after, there was a summit in the Soviet Union that led to the SALT talks. And this made many people think that Nixon and Kissinger were geniuses, especially Kissinger, in world affairs. And then on the eve of the election, Kissinger disingenuously said, peace is at hand. 
Now, there wouldn't be peace in Vietnam until March 19th. I shouldn't say peace. There wouldn't be an American withdrawal in Vietnam until Mar the end of March 1973. But, and then in between then, you have the Christmas bombings, which in Nixon's uh, words, were intended to blow the North Vietnamese to smithereens and other uh, phrases. But these things contributed immensely to Nixon's reelection. But what I think probably contributed most to Nixon's reelection was the ineptitude of George McGovern's campaign. Uh, Nixon lucked out. Well, and the irony is, and we it's a different different podcast. But the irony is, Nixon never even needed to burgle the Watergate Hotel. He, he, there was no chance McGovern was going to lose or win that election. What a uh, what a paranoid lunatic Nixon was. Um, one thing I, I want to add, though, is you, you know the phrase, you know, it takes a Nixon, it took Nixon to go, only Nixon could have gone to China. Like, that was a phrase that Nixon and Kissinger conjured themselves and leaked to the media. It was a remarkable example of self-promotion. And one of the things that really astounds me about both Nixon and Kissinger is how incredibly adept and inept they both were at self-promotion as a self-promotion promoter i think the only guy in the 20th century i think who does a better job of self-promotion than kissinger is winston churchill but winston churchill probably has more to work with than kissinger i'm actually not a kissinger fan nixon did a pretty good job but he was so paranoid he's doing things like putting Kissinger on other planes so he's going to the opposite end of the airport or making sure he gets off the plane first. And 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 Kissinger is a better scholar and writer than Nixon. And Kissinger's still alive. So when he writes his memoirs and his con he's constantly reshaping history and trying to shade things against what what uh, the professoriate is writing about him. Ultimately, I think it's a failing effort. But they're the ones who uh, did a lot of their own promotion back in 1971, 72. Fascinating. Well, let's let's conclude by taking things up to the to the present day. Now, Taiwan, uh, there is there is talk that that Taiwan is under threat from the PRC. Uh, the United States is uh, the Biden administration is is stating that it will stand by the uh, the defense agreement. Uh, what is the relevance for Nixon's visit on today's geopolitics? Yeah, well, the first thing I would say to that is, why did China want the rapprochement with the United States? And the answer is because it wanted to be recognized as a great power. It, it has other secondary concerns like modernization, access to technology. Uh, the, but above all, it wants to influence international events. That doesn't happen without the rapprochement between the United States. Nixon's visit to China gives China a tremendous amount of credibility. It strengthens Mao. It strengthens it strengthens Mao's allies. It weakens the hawks in the uh, in the in the Chinese People's Liberation Army, and it allows China to divert very important weapon or, or resources away from weapons and the military towards building a consumer economy. And again, by balancing the United States and the Soviet Union, China is able to, in a sense, free up a frontier, so to speak, just like the United States is able to do with the Soviet Union or, or with China by balancing China against the Soviet Union. This triangular diplomacy has a benefit for China as well. But China never forgets its grievance 
regarding Taiwan. China's rhetoric today is the same as it was yesterday, as it was 50 years ago with Nixon's visit, as it was with the, um, uh, with the Chinese Revolution. Taiwan is a part of China. The big question is, how far will China go to make that a reality? As long as the United States stands by its defense commitment, I think that it's unlikely that Taiwan will, uh, will go the way of, say, Ukraine. On the other hand, if China sees an opportunity, it's my opinion, I'm a historian, not a political scientist, nor Karnak the psychic, but I don't see, um, I don't see China backing down anytime soon, and I do see China trying to take advantage of, of any weakness it can. But let me wrap up like this. China has achieved global um, global status as a superpower, and I think evidence of that is the recent brokering of a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, that's something that typically we see the we we would have seen during the Cold War either the Soviet Union or the United States doing. Not a third country, not a third power like like the Chinese, but here you have China brokering a peace deal between. The, the the most oil rich country on the world in the world and one of the most oil rich con- countries in the world and one of the most powerful militaries in the region and it's all done with, under chinese auspices that's amazing and that is a legacy of the nixon visit to china would it be too much to say that it is unlikely that china would be where it is today had it not been for the china opening i won't say that i will say that the china opening was necessary for the Chinese to assert itself as a, as a global power. I, I tend to be to shy away from what if history, because I know that's not what you're asking, but what, what if we it's what if is the biggest world word in the world. If I were taller and more beautiful, the only thing we can say is that I'd be taller and more beautiful. Uh, but, but, but the, but the premise of your question is still something that re- really resonates with me. And that is, I think it was an important first step uh, towards China becoming a, a global power, not a regional power. So once again, we see that the the en- enormous legacy that actions taken w- w- did not does not necessarily seem like that long ago to me. This is something that I remember, uh, but but I guess it has been a long time ago. Uh, having real relevance to today's political affairs. Uh, so I want to thank you very much for joining us, Eric, and uh, and we appreciate your insights on this subject. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.